Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Our mission is to strip away the myths and hype that often surround the aesthetics industry. Inside Aesthetics aims to get to the bottom of the important topics that concern medical and allied health professionals, as well as the consumers themselves. We'll be showcasing the thoughts and experiences of experts in their respective fields. Each podcast will focus on a specialty, including surgery, non-surgical procedures, nutrition, well-being, and business knowledge from the personalities that have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general educational information about cosmetic procedures and well-being. It does not promote or endorse any cosmetic procedure, brand, or product. You should seek professional medical assessment before considering any treatment. In today's episode of the podcast, we welcome back Dr. Puri Maradi into the studio to talk to us about breast reconstructive surgery. Dr. Maradi explains the difference between breast augmentation and breast reconstruction, the different techniques involved, and the reasons behind why this type of surgery might be needed. Hello, Dr. Maradi. Thanks for coming back. You're fresh off the plane from Costa Rica. Yes. No, How good. was that? Good. Yeah, no, it was good. It was good. We... Um, it was an innovation summit uh, in Costa Rica with one of the breast implant companies looking at um, all the new technology available and what they're trying to do in the future um, and what they've done in the past to get them to where they are now. So it's actually exciting because not much was happening in the breast implant world and we were chatting before about it was pretty stagnant for the last 20, 20 30 years mm. um, and not much innovation happening. So um, this company's doing that and doing that uh, it's they they got great implants and the future's bright because they're really looking at the surface of the implant and the body's immune response to it so um yeah it's good times it seems like a bit of a hot topic at the moment whether it be the AL, ALC ALCL yeah, ALCL and people talking about breast implant illness and so it seems like it's a bit of a topic uh, of conversation and i guess the jury's still out a little bit about yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think what they've looked at is the the immune response to, that your body has to that shell. Um, traditional implants have created a, you know, a big immune response, T cells and mast cells. And maybe that's the cause of ALCL. Maybe that's the cause of breast implant illness. We're not sure. It's all in its infancy at the moment. Mm. But the current studies that they've done on this particular shell is promising because it's it's looking like that immediate uh, response, the inflammatory response is much less, so less of a capsule is formed in in, in this particular implant. If uh, you're wondering what we're talking about, Dr. Maradi did a, a previous podcast on breast augmentation, so ah. we're just touching on the topics that we spoke about in that yeah. podcast. Yeah. Um, so that's such a good point. We had a question from one of, uh, well, we haven't published your podcast yet, but we had a question from a listener who I said that we did breast augmentation podcast. And she said, what is breast implant disease or, or breast implant sickness? I don't think we fully covered that. Yeah, it, it's a tough one. I, I've, I've looked into it and there's a recent um, paper in our big journal that's looked into it as well. I guess it's a constellation of symptoms mm. the patients uh, get, whether it's skin-related fatigue, joint pain, um uh, you know, foggy brain, just just non-diagnostic ailments, I, I guess. Yeah. And when all else has been excluded, where you've you've seen your your uh, general practitioner, you've seen an immunologist, and there's no real cause, then people are like, okay, what else is causing this? Could it be related to your implant? Could it be related to your gut health? Could it be related to microbacteria in your body? No one really knows. Mm. But um, it'd be naive in us of us to exclude the there's Facebook groups of 50,000 women complaining about it. Whilst there's no scientific evidence or any robust literature supporting breast implant illness, yeah. you can't exclude these patients that have had these symptoms. And once they've removed their implants, whether it's a placebo, whether it's real, their symptoms go away. Yes. Um, so I think we have to look into it. Um, and the breast implant register is a very good uh, database that we have in Australia that can potentially look at that um as time goes on. So there's no diagnostic test. Yeah. You know, you can't go get your immunoglobins test or a tumor marker test to say you've got it. It's almost like irritable bowel. Once you've excluded everything else, yeah. you get a diagnosis of irritable or bowel. Or chronic fatigue. So or chronic fatigue. It's People have these real <clears throat> symptoms. They're not making it up. What's the cause of it? And if you've ruled out everything else, then I guess it makes sense. So to it's take like it a um, diagnosis by elimination. Yeah, right? correct. Yeah. yeah. 
Okay. Have you had any patients yourself who've um, that? Not patients that I've actively operated on, but I've had patients who've had implants um, elsewhere. Probably three to four last year that just said, I want my implants out. Yeah. I think they're causing me problems. Um, and I've got actually a breast recon patient coming up soon that feels like she's got breast implant illness. And um, actually next week, I think I'm operating on her in the public hospital as she's a breast cancer patient who feels like the implants may be causing some of it, some of the constellation of uh, symptoms that she has. So I guess watch this space and see how yeah. she responds to it. Okay, well, that leads us on to breast reconstruction, which is the topic of today's podcast. So can you explain for people who might not understand what's the difference between a breast augmentation and a breast reconstruction? Um, I guess technically the the same thing but we we as plastic surgeons kind of grouped as as cosmetic and reconstructive breast okay so cosmetic is as the name suggests cosmetic now but reconstructive there's definitely an element of cosmetic involved in it because uh, at the end of the day the women want to look good and recreate their curves um, but unlike cosmetic where there's no disease process patients just want to look bigger or better enhanced breast reconstruction is reconstruction using an implant or using your own tissue mm. when you've either had a developmental um issue or whether you've had cancer the most yes. common one is you know you've had breast cancer or you have a certain gene called the br bracket gene yeah and you're high risk for cancer and you do prophylactic mastectomy which means you're taking the breast out to prevent future cancer and so it's the reconstructing that in all encompasses those diseases and would um post-pregnancy women fall into that category? No, well, no, no okay. they, they wouldn't. Um, they wouldn't. In a way, you could argue that it is a reconstruction right. of sorts, but post-pregnancy, we, we, as well as the insurance companies and as well as Medicare, counts that as a cosmetic, uh, so that is purely private, uh, whereas the reconstruction post-cancer is all reconstructive, so Medicare covers it, therefore your private insurance and the public sector will cover all, if not part, of the cost. Um However, if you have developmental breast conditions, uh, such as, you know, tuberous breasts um, and in the juvenile, you know, over 16, under 20 age bracket, they can also be classified as uh, reconstructive. What is a tuberous breast? <laughs> so I'm tuberous to... breast can mean so many different things to so many different people. Essentially, it's a developmental uh, abnormality of the breast. Now, some people get light they're like a very minor problems others get really gross deformities and it's a spectrum so classically it, during the developmental stage the breast underdevelops in the lower pole the fascia around the areola doesn't develop it either so what generally happens you get puffy nipples as well and herniated nipples which can cause sagginess so you can have a type of tuberous west breast where you've just got a large nipple with areola complex and no tissue underneath and that needs a reconstruction other patients have the same but they've got ptosis which is sagginess so they've got all that they underdevelop at the bottom but they're overdeveloped at the top and they cause sagginess and droopiness mm. so and unfortunately for some patients they can have the overdeveloped version of it on one side and the underdeveloped version on the other so they could be an a cup on the right side and a d cup on the left side and these patients, their, their primary goal is just to get symmetry and then they would think about aesthetics. So it's just like, an, I guess, an all-encompassing term for a deformed breast. Correct. Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. Okay. What about for massive weight loss? We had a, a recent podcast with Dr. Jeremy Hunt and yeah. obviously that presumably is, is part of breast reconstruction. If you've got hugely saggy skin and, yeah. and overdeveloped breasts, would that be covered as well or, or not? Um, yeah, I think that's a good good question. So we, if 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 it's when we, when we say covered, as in if can it be covered by the by your Medicare and yeah. your private insurance? Can it be covered in the public hospital? No. Okay. The rules as they as they exist right now, if you have saggy breasts post massive weight loss, post children, uh, then you can get the lift or a reduction, and that is covered by insurance. But as soon as you put an implant in, it becomes cosmetic. Then it becomes cosmetic. Okay. So. Um, and I think that's reasonable because it, it was being abused in, in the past, I suspect. Yeah. So 1st of November last year, Medicare rewrote the descriptors of all the numbers. And as soon as you put an implant in for massive weight loss, breast lift, it becomes cosmetic, then you can't use that breast lift number. What, what but not you, for tuberous. Tuberous is different. What if you've got the procedure where you're doing 
a genuine lift or a reduction, but you do need an implant to. So as soon as you Tough add that bit in, yeah, it's as soon so as you add it. Yeah. So how would you tackle that sort of a case? You pay for where, plastic. I'm sorry. You pay for plastic. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're <laughs> paying for the silicon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So how would you split that? I mean, in terms from a patient's perspective, would you do the procedure in two stages where you do the reconstruction, which is, I guess, covered by various ways they can. Um, claim that through private insurance and Medicare, and then you do the implant as a second? Or that, how would you approach that's that? That's the way to do it. But okay. I think doing it that way, you're you're almost snookering yourself. You're, okay. you're, you're trying to fit an operation around a legislation right. where I think the best thing is to do the right operation and accept that the breast lifting implant is a cosmetic procedure right. and then the fees for the hospitals, the implants are all covered by the patient. Right, okay, fair enough. Um, okay, so let's concentrate on the different types of reconstruction. Yep. So, I mean, we've just got a, a small list here, but you mentioned breast lift. Is that the same as a mastopexy? Yeah, but mastopexy and, mastopexy and breast lift are exactly the same. Yeah. Same thing. Um, and that is exactly what the name suggests. You're trying to lift the breast. So what you're trying to do is reduce the skin envelope, reshape the breast, and reposition the breast. Yeah. So those the three R's I say to patients, you're trying to reduce, reposition, replace. Um, reshape, sorry. So you want to reshape it to a better shape, lift the nipple, reduce the skin envelope because it's the nipple that, and the breast tissue that sag. Yeah. And then nearly 90, 99% of the time when you do a breast lift post-massive weight loss, post-pregnancy, you need volume, okay? Yeah. And the volume is best with an implant because it's more stable, but you can also use fat grafting, but fat grafting you can only use in limited, uh, limited use. You can't fill a breast with fat and expect it all to survive. Yeah. So just to qualify that, let's say a woman's, you know, she's breastfed two or three kids. It's basically where the breast deflates and sort of looks a bit flat and saggy. That, yep. uh, that would be a good indication for a breast lift. I guess the best indication for a breast lift is the patient wants a, <laughs> wants a breast lift. But yeah, that's when you do it. Sometimes you can get away with an implant alone and the implant could lift the breast by itself called yep. a scarless breast lift where you only make its incision in the crease. Uh, however, whenever you have the nipple and breast tissue, the majority of it sitting at or lower than the crease, yeah, you need to surgically lift that up because the implant can't do it for you. Okay. Um, so that's the same as a mastopexy. Then we obviously come on to, I guess, the, what, what you're saying, the cancer operation. So mastectomy um, and then either an immediate reconstruction or a delayed reconstruction. Correct. Why? Well, Firstly, what is a mastectomy for, for those who don't know? Okay, so a mastectomy, um, I mean, a mastectomy is removing breast tissue. Now, there's different types of mastectomy. So traditionally and historically, people have talked about radical mastectomies. So what was that? Where all the tissue from the chest wall, the skin, breast tissue, nipple, and the muscles of the chest wall were taken. And that was very aggressive and very deforming. Over time, as our knowledge of tumor biology has changed and uh, adjuvant treatments such as chemo, radiotherapy, hormone replacement, the need to do aggressive mastectomies has reduced, which mm. is great. So then uh, as that's moved on, there is a total mastectomy where you're taking the nipple and all the breast tissue but leaving the skin um, or such that's called skin sparing mastectomy. Then you have nipple sparing mastectomies where you take all the breast tissue, keep the skin envelope and leave the nipple. Mm. Now, the nipple underneath it has breast tissue. So if you're going to leave the nipple, it has to be an oncologically sensible manoeuvre. Sure. Um, and in that case, we like to keep the nipple if it's a prophylactic mastectomy, which means you don't have cancer, but you're high risk of getting cancer. So in those cases, we like to keep the nipple because it, then you don't have to reconstruct a nipple. Yes. Or if the tumour's away from the nipple areola complex, you can keep the nipple. Now, Angelina Jolie famously had that operation Um and what they did for her, they went in, did it, and they took testing from underneath the nipple surface, and there was no tumor there, so they knew they could keep the nipple. <clears throat> she had it bilateral. Bilateral, correct. correct. Yep. Is that she had? Um, well, she was in the high risk category, like genetically. Correct. I don't know if she had BRCA, but she was definitely it was a prophylactic mastectomy. Yes. And is that something that's just uh, hereditary, or it's just, I guess, a, ran a random act of God, or? I <laughs> know uh, that's there's there's two gene markers, BRCA one and BRCA two. There's a genetic predisposition. Um, some 
subgroups such as Ashkenazi Jews have an 80-90% carrier rate for, for BRCA genes. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, in Prince of Wales where we, wor- we work, a lot of our prophylactic patients are BRCA gene. And there's a great charity called Pink Hope, um, which every year has – and they just deal with uh, prophylactic mastectomy um, uh, awareness and support. And every year they have a have a dinner down at um, uh, the Langham down in, in the rocks and I go to a talk about mastectomies and, and, and reconstructions uh, for that. So it is a big community in Sydney, the prophylactic gene as well as the non-gene patients. It's, mm. it's women that have had sisters, aunties, mothers who've all had breast cancer, but yet we don't know which gene that they've had and then these patients just feel like they're on a ticking time bomb yeah so they're like let's do a prophylactic mastectomy remove you, you can't your risk isn't going to go down to zero but you that's why we call it a risk reducing right mastectomy. I was gonna, I was a, you just took away my next question yeah yeah <laughs> so, so i mean in terms of the percentage reduction you're not really too sure how much it reduces it by or uh the quote that we say is about 90 percent. it reduces oh, your risk okay. by 90 percent. that's significant yeah, yeah yeah okay what about men? Can men have BRCA? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Men can have BRCA. Men can have breast cancer. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Not so, as common in women, obviously, or as common. No, no, it's not as common. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yes. Gosh. Okay. So that was type, well, yeah, sort of types of mastectomy. Now, why would you sometimes do an immediate operation to do the cosmetic repair, yeah. if you like, and other times delay it? Yeah. Um, very good question. So I guess... One of the problems we have in Australia, we don't offer immediate reconstruction enough. And a lot of it is the postcode lottery. We're in a big country. You don't have the center. So if you're out in the country, a, a breast surgeon might go, yes, you're a candidate for immediate reconstruction, but we don't have the facilities here. So we're doing a mastectomy. You can go to a plastic surgeon. And our immediate reconstruction rates are in the order of about 11% in Australia. Wow, that's in the UK and Britain, uh, UK and the US, it's up to 30 to 50%. Mm. So that's what we should be, they're the goals that we should be aiming for. Yeah. Um, now, when would you have an immediate, when would you have a delayed? I think every woman who has is having a mastectomy should at least have the discussion about whether they need immediate reconstruction. Yeah. The reason you may not get immediate reconstruction is you may need radiotherapy afterwards. Yeah. So if you've got an aggressive disease and there's definite a chance to get radiotherapy, then it's probably best not to immediate reconstruction why because whatever tissue you put in there whether it's been implant or uh tissue from the tummy which we'll talk about in a little bit you don't want to expose that to radiotherapy yeah because radiotherapy is great because it kills tissue but it can also kill and cause fibrosis of that soft tissue that you've transferred um so that's the major thing tumor biology whether they need whether patients need radiotherapy post-op yeah okay Hmm, okay. And what about um, reconstruction when people just have breasts that are too large that are just ruining their life? Yeah, so breast, um, re, yeah, breast reduction, um, yet again, covered by Medicare with item numbers. Therefore, your your hospital insur- uh, your hospital will be covered by private insurance. Can it be done in the public sector? The New South Wales government brought in laws, say, eight years ago, saying that breast reduction <laughs> cannot be done in the public sector unless they've got severe, severe pain and um, uh, symptoms from it, okay? Oh. And at our hospital, maybe of the all the referrals we get, I probably only do one that a year at the public hospital that fulfills that criteria, right? Mm-hmm. okay? That's when the breast and nipples are sitting down near the belly button. You go, okay, that's... But a lot of the time, the classic breast reduction that you see, it just, it's just not... You just can't do it in the public sector because they don't fulfill the right criteria to get right. done in the public sector. Okay. In the UK, to get breast reductions in the in the public, uh, it is possible. It is fully covered, but you have to have a BMI less than 30. Yeah. So if you've got a BMI over 30, you're not in. You have to be below 30 yeah. to be allowed to get it done. Right. And when we were talking to um, Dr. Hunt recently, he was talking about the fact that when he's doing a full body lift, the breasts fall into part of, I guess, a, a series of procedures where he'll start from the bottom and work his way up. Yep. Is that something that you see a lot of as well in terms of people that have had massive weight loss that have 
their breasts have become deformed and they've got a lot of redundant skin from yeah. that huge weight loss. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, a lot of those patients, I suppose they come into two groups. Some have always had large breasts and then now they've lost the weight, they just sag and they're like, you know what? I don't want implants. I don't want big breasts anymore. Just reduce them. I want to be, some even say, just take them off. I want to be zero. I'm sick and tired of having breasts. Um, but, you know, so you try to create them a C cup, a nice perky C cup so that it's comfortable. Mm. Other patients like, I've always had big breasts. Now they're saggy. I'm just used to having volume. I need volume. I want you to do the lift, but I want an implant because mm. I've always had breasts. Um, and I, I want to have that volume. So they kind of fall into that two groups. So you have to cater and customize the operation to them. Now, the one that just has a breast reduction, totally covered. The woman that wants the breast lift reduction with implant, not covered by insurance. So therefore, out-of-pocket cost. Okay. I have an interesting question for you. You may or may not be yeah. able to answer it. Um, trans people. Yep. So people that are tra transitioning from... Well, I guess either way. Yeah. How does that work in terms of taking a male chest and feminizing it or making it look? Um, is that going from male to female is relatively easy because okay. Okay. they've uh, been on medication, so they've had the estrogen, so that that naturally creates a little bit of subcutaneous tissue, not breast tissue, but you know. Um, and then it's all a matter of putting an implant in. So it's not too dissimilar to a totally flat-chested lady who is just having implants yes there's other nuances but that's not that's not as big a problem right now um female to male it can be a little bit more difficult but it all comes down to the breast shape they have before right um because if you've got if you're a female to male transgender and you've got b c d and above to reduce that breast tissue you're going to make that nipple non-viable. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the time the nipple that is the blood supply and the viability is through the breast tissue. Now you're removing the breast tissue, you're essentially doing a mastectomy, but what is keeping that nipple alive? Right. A lot of the time, nothing. So a lot of the time in those uh, female to males, we have to take the nipple off and put it on as a free nipple graft. Right, okay. Where, that, yeah. yeah, so you create the scars as you would for a breast reduction, but then you pick, put the nipple where you where you want it. And how convincing does that look? I mean, is that something that everyone's going to be able to tell when you take your shirt off that that's well, that something have, significant's gone to, on there? Or you're yeah, going to have scars. Right. You're going to have a big. You're going to have a big longitudinal scar in your crease. That, right. That's that's the that's the bigger issue compared to the nipple graft. The nipple, if it takes, it looks, it never looks the same as a native nipple. Right. When you take a nipple off and. It's like a skin graft. When you take a bit of skin from your thigh and you put it somewhere else in your body, it still doesn't look like the area that you put it in nor the area that it came from. Right. Same as a nipple. Even if you get that same nipple, put it straight in, it always just looks a little bit different color, but it's okay if it's bilateral because they both look the same. That's not the issue. It's a big scar in the crease that an, a, a man that goes to the beach can't hide that, but yeah. a male to female going to the beach will just have that four centimeter incision in the crease and be wearing a swim swim top or bikini yeah, top right. you can't see it okay is there challenges i guess around the male body when you're trying to feminize it in terms of like uh, i guess pectoral uh muscular development or is it make it more di a more difficult procedure no no really? I, I don't i don't think it uh, no not really okay. because nowadays some of the women that i see crossfitters yeah fitness okay. models per pts they've got you know, bigger pecs than most, most men. Yeah, so right. the anatomy is no different for that anyway. Okay. It's just that subcutaneous pocket, how much fat or breast tissue you have to camouflage the implant. That's the bigger issue, not the muscle. And how mm. common are these procedures that you're doing, I guess, for, I guess, in terms of the scope of your practice, how often would you be encountering these sorts of procedures? Not, not that much. Not, I mean, this year, probably two, two male to female transgender breast okay. dogs, not, not a big part of my practice. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. Just going back to what you were saying about the availability of these operations. So my understanding, having you know done surgery previously, you've got general surgeons who do a bit of breast surgery, Correct. but they're not reconstructive surgeons. So they might be the people who do a simple mastectomy and say, go and see Dr. Maradi. Then you've got breast surgeons who may or may not be trained to do reconstruction as well. Yep. And then you've got plastic surgeons who aren't trained to do the cancer work. Yes. Yeah, so, so who should be doing this? Well, traditionally, I mean, 
any breast cancer work should go to a major teaching hospital where we have multidisciplinary meetings. Yeah. And in those MDT meetings, you have psychologists, you've got oncologists, you've got radiotherapists, you've got plastic surgeons, you've got breast surgeons. Yeah. Um, and different units do different things. So I, my unit, the Royal Hospital for Women and Prince of Wales campus, um, not far from here, um, we have breast surgeons who just do the mastectomies and we as the plastic surgeons do the reconstruction. So my sure. list on Monday, uh, one of the breast surgeons is doing but two bilateral mastectomies, and I'll be reconstructing an implant-based reconstruction. So you effectively do a tag halfway and you Correct. step in. Correct. And now, um, other hospitals that I have worked uh, that are no longer, no longer work at, at Westmead, for example, the breast surgeons, now they're, they're no longer just general surgeons, they just do breast and they do their own implant-based reconstructions. Yes. So at those MDT meetings, they're happy to proceed and do the reconstruction themselves when it's implant-based. Yeah. When it's tissue-based reconstruction, um, that's when we get involved. Now, all patients then have a choice. You can reconstruct your breast with an implant or your own tissue. Mm. There's pros and cons for both. What is your own tissue? Well, it's like transplant surgery. Um, and the best bit of tissue that we can get is the tummy tuck tissue. So usually the tummy tuck, we throw that in the bin. What we know, we can take the, the tummy and it's got a blood supply, an artery going in and a vein draining it. So we can get that bit of tissue, trace the artery and vein down to its source vessels in the groin, disconnect it as a transplant, and then go up to the chest wall, go take a, take a, a segment of rib out just near your sternum and the internal mammary artery and vein, what the cardiothoracic surgeons use for their bypass, under a microscope, it, they measure about between one and a half to two and a half millimetres, and then you reattach the artery and vein and reattach the circulature so then that patient has a nice soft breast flesh rather than rather than an implant an implant yeah, yeah. wow so how do you shape that because obviously you know if you remove like a, a block of stomach yeah. it's kind of square shaped yeah so you, you depending which part and whether you're doing both sides you shape it all internally so you reconnect the blood vessels yeah. and then you cone like you cone it to the shape of the breast that you want mm -hmm. and if you're doing an immediate reconstruction it's a little bit easier because you've got the shell of the your native breast tissue yes. so you're pro providing volume in delayed breast reconstruction it's a little harder because you don't have that envelope so you have to recreate the envelope and the volume as well right so in a weird way and obviously, they're going to trivialize this, but you, you, you're getting a tummy tuck yeah. plus new boobs. Yeah, yeah. It's like right. a win-win. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and a, lot of, a lot of patients uh, do like that aspect of it. Yeah. They do like that aspect of it. Now, what I say to the patient, that is the Rolls-Royce operation. There's, there's no doubt that that is the best operation. No implant. Once it survives, then that's your breast. You, you don't need any more touch-ups. You don't need to worry about capsular contracture, implant rupture, changing the implant. Yeah. That is a Rolls-Royce operation. But what I say to patients is, if you um, if you live at home and you just have to go to the corner store to get milk, you don't get in a Rolls-Royce. You can walk. So whilst it might be the Rolls-Royce oper operation, it may not be the Rolls-Royce operation for you at that stage of your life. Yeah. You could always get it later on, but a lot of patients like, I don't want to be in hospital for a week. I want the implant where I'm only in for two days. So yes, it's better operation, but some people just don't have enough tissue, don't have the downtime, don't want to go through the, that big operation. Yeah. Mm. I remember being a, a young doctor at night having to do constant the observations flap of yeah, the yeah. flap, making sure it's alive, basically. Yeah, Still yeah. a young doctor. A young doctor. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> Anti-wrinkle Egyptians help, but... <laughs> Don't feel young anyway. Um, one of the things that uh, seems to get spoken about a lot is the scars that people are going to be left with. And mm -hmm. I hear terms like the lollipop scar or yep. the anchor scar or, I mean, I'm, these are just the, the terms I hear, I've heard thrown around in the yep. past. Can you maybe just delve into that a little bit for us in terms of what that... Yeah, so I guess the, the goal is to create shape. Mm. So first and foremost, out of, out of patients... Shape out trumps scars. Of course, we want to have as little scars as possible, but you can't do it at the expense of shape. Mm. So to create shape, we need to lift the breast tissue and lift lift the nipple. Now, there's different ways to, to do it. So from the most conservative, or least scar burden would be uh, what's called a scarless breast lift, where it's just a little bit saggy. You put the incision in the crease and put an implant and it lifts it, one. Then pretend we're not putting implants in. Then you go, okay, well, how else can I lift the breast tissue? You could do what's called a periareola 
lift whereby all the incisions are done around the diameter of the areola and you create the lift that way. That's only good for really minor lifts, one to two centimeters. I don't like that because I don't like putting tension on the areola because it's a pretty weak structure and if over time that can expand and patients get like really blown out areolas. So then you're working your way down the the reconstructive ladder, you go, okay, so the next lift is a vertical or a lollipop. So you've got an uh, incision around the areola and vertically down. And that is the most powerful lift because the vertical the vertical incision gets rid of horizontal excess. Mm. So it's hard to explain. I'm trying to show you when you go like that. It's a that. bit like um, yeah. draping a, a piece of clothing. You're Correct. sort of overlapping it you're to overlapping tighten it. it. Yeah, you're overlapping it and then you're getting the pillars, the breast pillars from the inside and outside, cutting out a wedge in the middle and then bringing that together and that creates the shape and naturally lifts up the nipple. And a lot of time you could do that. So we, it's called the lollipop lift because the incision is circle and straight down. Ah, okay. All right. And then the progression of that is if you just have too much skin and too much breast tissue, you can't expect to cut it all out with the vertical because if you've got too much breast tissue and skin, you've got horizontal excess and vertical excess. So the vertical incision deals with the horizontal excess. The horizontal incision gets rid of the vertical excess. Mm. So the next step down is the anchor or the inverted T where you've got incision around the areola vertically down and then one in the crease and that crease one gets rid of all the rest of the excess skin yeah right and breast tissue so uh this is tailoring basically isn't it yeah you do and you do tailor tack it during the operation where Mm -hmm. you list sit them up and you get you get sutures and stitch them into place so basically the more tissue you have removed the more extensive your scars likely correct yeah and a stupid question can you explain the difference between a nipple and an areola well, the nipple is the protruding bit, and the areola. Jake's looking at me like, "What's wrong with you?" Yeah. Well, Do you want me to show you? Yeah. <laughs> Not well, today. Well, that's why we call it the nipple areola complex. Right. So the nipple is the protruding component, and right. the areola is the coloration around the side. Ah, okay. Stupid question. I was just I was always wondering what the difference. No, but uh, I suppose that could. That's a good um, uh, segue into nipple areola reconstruction post right. cancer. Is <laughs> after you've had your reconstruction, whatever form, and let's say you've had a skin sparing mastectomy which means the nipple's gone but the skin's preserved but you need a nipple so then your options for nipple reconstruction is we can as plastic surgeons create a nipple by local tissue origami and create projection but that only creates the nipple it doesn't create the areola the areola has to be tattooed on um, by a tattoo artist so so we recreate the nipple and then six months later when it's all settled they color in around the outside and color in the area, uh, the nipple. I say to patients, you can have that, or you could just have the tattooing by itself. You don't get projection, but at least you get the color. Yeah. And it's 50 50. Some people want this projection, some people don't. Now, tattooists at our clinic, we actually fly somebody up from Melbourne mm-hmm. who does the 3D tattooing. So from in front, there's the illusion that there's projection of the of the nipple and depth. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So they're not just they're not just people sitting down at Bondi Inc. Yeah, yeah. Bondi getting Inc. nipples yeah. put on. But okay. when you feel it, it's not textured. No, it's not. Right. But then, when I was on my fellowship in in the UK, we as registrars and plastic surgeons, we had to do the tattooing, and it was kind of fun. <laughs> but I can tell you, the tattooing that we did, it was very juvenile compared to like these, you know, these ah. practitioners. That's all they do. Yeah, like full-blown artists now, a lot of these tattoo yeah. guys. It's yeah. a career in itself, isn't it, yeah. to be a like a, a reconstructive tattooist? Yeah. Maybe it's actually probably not a bad podcast talking to one of the cosmetic tattooists. Mm. Well, yeah, and permanent makeup, yeah. perhaps. Yeah. yeah, we'll speak to um, – we'll reach out. So I guess in terms of like colour matching would be tough as well, I guess, when you're dealing with different ethnicities and, yeah, trying to get the, the right tone. Do you take a photo of the nipple beforehand so they can try and colour match it? I guess – it depends if it's unilateral or bilateral. Yeah. Okay. Right. So the easiest is when you it's bilateral because you just use the same ink for both sides. Yeah. Right. The tougher one um, is when you've you've got a native areola mm. nipple areola on one side, and the tattooist has to try to color match th- that scar. Maybe they just tattoo over the other one as well. Sometimes they do that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Hmm. Just to finish off the the types of flaps or, yeah. or free tissue, um, there's also the the flap from the back. Yeah. So when or, wh- or why would you do that one? If this one's the Rolls-Royce from the tummy, what's the 
point of the one from the back? The, the point, the one from the back, um, um, Jake's referring to the latissimus dorsi muscle. So it's a big, broad muscle at the back. And uh, right in the brass strap, you could take the skin as well. So for delayed reconstructions, when you're short of skin, you can, you're still, it's still a flap because you're recruiting the blood vessel with its soft tissue and you bring it around to the front. We're using that less and less for a number of reasons. Now, we have what's called uh, acellular dermal matrix. So mm. in the past, we needed that muscle and the, uh, the muscle to act like a sling for the implant yep. to hold our implant in and we needed the tissue to help grow, to, to recruit uh, fresh tissue. Yep. But now we're using acellular dermal matrix, which is mesh slings. There's different types of mesh, mesh slings. We can, you could use absorbable ones, biological ones, as in from cadaver skin. Mm. You could use uh, sheep intestine. There's stuff made out of pericardium, like heart tissue of, um, of uh, I don't know, maybe sheep as well. Um, so because we now have that, we are less reliant on using the latissimus dorsi. So, so the evolution of medical devices has kind of made that operation a little bit obsolete yeah. because we used it, used to use it as a sling. Now we've got an alloplastic, which means off-the-shelf sling. Yeah. Now, the reason I don't use... I only use the latissimus dorsi only in salvage situations. So when they've got no breast, no tummy tissue, mm. they've used the tummy tissue and it's failed and you just have to recruit skin. The problem with the latissimus dorsi is you're taking your tissue, okay, so you're, you're sacrificing a muscle, you're sacrificing, and then you've got the scar around the back, but you still need an implant. So you're using a flap and you're using an implant. So you've got all the downsides of having a flap mm. plus all the downsides of using an implant. Yeah. Whereas if you're using the tummy tissue, yes, you've got the downsides of taking a tissue, but you don't have an implant. Yes. Or if you use the slings that I talk about with an implant, then you don't have any flap problems, but you've still got the implant. So that's the problem with the lat dorsi so now. The, the more complications you can rule out, the, the technically less challenging the operation. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Less moving parts. Um. So it's, it seems like um, a big part of, I guess, reconstruction or lifts is, uh, and we sort of touched on this a, bit, a little bit earlier, is uh, post-pregnancy. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of women may not know whether they fall into the category where they've got this redundant skin or they're just not as perky, they've lost that upper pole fullness. Um, are they a candidate just for an implant? Um, are they borderline? Do they need both? Do they just need a lift? So how do you... Sort of, yeah, it all comes down to how much, how saggy the lower pole tissue is, right? And where the nipple sits. Um, my, my philosophy with patients is if there's any doubt, there's no doubt, right? If, if you think you need a lift, you need a lift, right? Okay. And all the troubles that you get <laughs> into is when you try to get away without a lift, when you go, okay, let's try to put an implant in. I'm sure it'll kick it up. And what happens is the implant sits up, the breast tissue doesn't go up with it because it's lost that elasticity. And then you get what's called the Snoopy or waterfall deformity where the implant sits up here mm. and the breast tissue drops below it. So the decision to use it, a, a lift comes down to what the native breast looks like to start with. And right. if there's any breast, for me, if there's any breast tissue, if the nipples... At the crease or lower, you need a lift, no doubt. Right. But if the nipple's above it, but you've got a lot of breast tissues below it, I still think you need a lift as well because it's <clears> lost that support. You put a heavy implant in, that's only going to do one thing, keep going down. Yeah, right. Is that um, similar to the double bubble effect or uh, it's different? No, it's, 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 just, no, it's different. Okay. It's different. So the Snoopy or waterfall deformity is the breast up here in the – the implant up in the breast falling off it. Right. Whereas double bubble is kind of the opposite. The breast sitting lower and the the implant sitting lower and the breast sitting above it. So right. then you get that, that bubble. So I guess that's all it in in uh, in essence it's caused by the relationship between the native breast tissue and the implant. Correct. And if they're not aligned you either get snoopy or Perfect. double bubble. Absolutely. Okay. The goal is you want your breast implant to sit on your your breast footprint to sit on your chest footprint. Yeah. So you got your chest footprint, and then so you put an implant on top of it, and you want that breast footprint to sit on your implant footprint that sits perfectly on your chest footprint. Yeah. When there's any changes in that, where the breast footprint doesn't fit the implant uh, footprint, then you get double bubble. When the breast footprint is too big for the implant footprint, then you get 
Snoopy. I think Dr. Hunt was saying it's like a, he uses, what was that bed analogy that he was talking about? So you've got your fitted, your fitted sheet, yep. which is like your, uh, like your fat, like I guess your native breast tissue. And then anything you put on top of that, like your, your doona or whatever. Yeah. If, if, so yeah, I did, I'm not doing it any justice to try to re-explain that, that <laughs> analogy. Good job. I'll talk to Jeremy. Yeah, yeah. 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 I'll jump into bed with Jeremy. <laughs> now, I guess this is sort of obvious, but it's an important point just to explore briefly. So, the point of doing a reconstruction is is because you're going to psychologically affect someone if you remove their breast yeah. or if they're born with very asymmetrical breasts. So, I mean, do you work with presumably psychologists as as part of you know your multidisciplinary chat before you, you oh, embark yeah. on an operation like this? Yeah, every patient at, uh, at our hospital that undergoes any breast. Um, gets seen by a specialist breast nurse yeah. and also gets seen by a psychologist and psychi- uh, psychologist and psychiatrist. More importantly, if you've got cancer, you're getting a mastectomy, right? There, there's no ambiguity there. But the patients that are gene carriers and who have high family risk but don't have a gene, they particularly get seen more by the psychologist mm. because it's a, bigger, it's a bigger step going, okay, I'm having a bilateral mastectomy. I don't have cancer, but I may have and I don't have a gene. Yes. So those ones, they get scrutinized a lot more because there's that what if what if I don't get cancer? What if I get cancer? Mm. Whereas if you've got cancer It's an easy decision. It's an easy decision, you know. What sort of proportion of women are kind of, you know, very like, okay, I've got a risk, no problem. I'm happy to do it, versus those people that undecided. Uh, I'm a bit my my answer would be skewed because we only see the we we never see the ones that don't go ahead with mastectomy we and we only see the ones that not only get mastectomy also get the reconstruction okay so we're cherry picking the ones the motivated sure ones sure. that want the reconstruction so yeah. I, I couldn't answer that okay fair enough hmm. um you mentioned briefly the breast implant registry yeah what what is that um it's a Similar to like the <coughs> joint registry or um, it's all implants and it's an opt out option. So all patients ha- go on it unless they specifically say they don't want, don't want to go on it. Mm. And any, time, any implant that we put in a patient, breast implant, that needs to go on the registry. The patient's stickers, the implant stickers go in and uh, it's, it's and Monash University controls it and they have all the data and they look through the data. So every year I write to the registry and go, can you just give me my data? And they tell me how many implants I've done, mm. what total of implants I've done, whether it's for revision or what. So it's good for your own internal auditing. Yes. But as a global thing, now we have the data and Australia was pioneer with the pioneering countries in creating a registry where data can be collected in 5, 10, 20 years on, on the implants. Okay. So if you did ever get some new funny problem, you could scrutinize and say, well, these people had that implant. Correct. Maybe it was that or, or whatever. Correct. Similar to the joint replacements where they had the cobalt leak for hip replacements, for example, and patients were getting have, getting delirious and having mental health issues and it was they found out that it was related to the leak of the cobalt in the hip replacement. Oh, I didn't know about that. Jeez, that yeah. not like doesn't sound good to have cobalt running around in you. Well, yeah, it was actually an orthopedic <laughs> surgeon who ha- who had his own <laughs> hip replacement, and he just went delirious. Oh wow! One conference, and then found out that it was that, and then he found other patients that had, and he goes, "Oh my god, better get my cobalt." Amazing hip. that you can chase it there. So yeah, gosh, yeah. Um, getting back to the procedure itself, so I'm assuming the consultation process is similar to, I guess, any other uh, consult that you may do in terms of explaining risks, complications, downturn, I guess, giving the patient realistic expectations of results. What are the major complications or things that can go wrong with reductions, reconstructions? Um, I guess, so let's do the most complex one, which is the free tissue transfer. The consultation for free tissue transfer takes much longer than a cosmetic one because there's a lot more to go through. So what I say to patients, well, there's specific and general complications. Well, general is if you're having a one-sided unilateral operation, you're probably spending six hours in, uh, in, uh, in, in theaters. If you have a bilateral, four to six for unilateral, six to eight for bilateral, depending if you need the mastectomy is that. Mm. So the longer the operation, the higher the risk for general anesthetic, DVTs, which What's deep, that? Deep, deep vein thrombosis, so okay. clots in the legs that may propagate to the to the lung. And 
these patients who generally are have tamoxifen, which is a type of hormone replacement, right. generally may have a cancer. They're in what's called a pro-coagulant state, so they they clot more. So we just have to be careful of that. So when they're in bed for six to eight hours during the operation, and then afterwards when they're uh, not ambulant, they need to be given you know blood thinners to try to prevent that happening, get them walking physio. So that's a big one. Then specific is we're transplanting a bit of tissue with a microvasculature that's about a vein and artery, about one and a half to two millimeters. So when we transplant that, there's a risk that the, the they get clots off. And so Jake was saying when he was a junior doctor, he'd used to go and test the viability of it. And that's to make sure the circulation survives. Now, the literature on survival of this is generally 5% go off so they get clotted off and if you take it back in that in that early 72 hour period you can salvage it get rid of the clot that's that's, um, developed in the vein and artery and flush out now if you do that and it doesn't work then that bit of tissue is dead gone so you have to come up with another reconstruction so that is like I mean the most catastrophic problem is obviously death during anaesthetic but the most catastrophic for us is when that flap dies then other risks are which you alluded to before, the scarring. It's the same scar as the tummy tuck all the way in the crease, new belly button, the scar from the mastectomy, bleed, uh, infection as well. And whenever you're transferring a bit of fat, you worry about what's called fat necrosis. It's where whilst the tissue, most of it survives, part of it may not get all the blood supply and that the areas of fat uh, go hard and you get calcified areas of fat in the breast. And related to implant reconstruction, same old things, infection, capsular contracture, malposition of the implant. I, um, When I was on my fellowship in the UK, we looked at the cost to the healthcare system of implant-based reconstruction versus autologous reconstruction, which mm. is free tissue transfer. And we try to, try to tabulate or document a time where it was more financially viable. I haven't explained it very well. But so implant-based reconstruction is cheaper for society, for health healthcare providers, um, in the short term, such as it's the operations two days in hospital rather than a week in hospital, um, two hours in opera, opera theaters instead of six hours in theaters. But then long and for the first three years of the care of the implant, it's cheaper. But then after three years, it's more financially benefit to the government and all the hospitals to do free tissue transfer because after three years, well, after the one, op- you only have one operation for three, free tissue transfer for the implant, you've got the life of the implant, the revisions, the replacements or whatever. So the cost of society is more for implants to start with. And mm-hmm. there's more complications to start with, but in the long term, the free tissue is better because it's part of your body. It's, it's like having a native breast. It's soft. Okay. So we covered, um, Obviously, anaesthetic risk. Yeah. Um, we spoke about uh, tissue uh, death or necrosis. Is that yeah. what you do? Um, so, the, I guess the, the flap failing. Yeah. Um, so, then what are the other major, I guess, risks or complications that people make? Uh, well, those are the three are, major ones. Yeah, they're the, and patients aren't happy with the result, I right. guess. There's a funny psychological uh, phenomenon where patients that have delayed reconstruction delayed is they've lived with a mastectomy and flat chested and you do a reconstruction for them are happier than women that have an immediate reconstruction. Right, so okay. women that go to sleep with a breast and wake up with a breast because they're, they've they never not had a breast. So right. they go to sleep with a breast, wake up with a the breast. Their expectations are different from a patient that's had no breast, lived without no breast for a year and then has a breast made. Whilst the immediate reconstruction has a better aesthetic outcome, because they've got the skin envelope, it's the delayed reconstructions who don't look as good aesthetically who have better appreciation of their result because mm. they're just sense. happy. They're just happy because they've, they've lived with the consequences, consequences of not yeah. right. in the breast. Okay. Yeah, interesting. That makes sense. So when you think about it psychologically, mm. um, and then what's the recovery process like in terms um, of how long do they get back to normal life? I think you say for the tummy tissue, similar to tummy tuck, plan for four weeks of just feeling tight because you're tight you have to take the tummy Mm. tissue you have to tighten the muscles as well it's almost the same as a tummy tuck without the liposuction right um and implant-based reconstruction you probably need to take two to say two to four weeks off work Mm. whereas tissue-based reconstruction you'd say four to six weeks off work so double the time right Mm. um and in terms of uh i guess the final aesthetic result 
how long does that take to sort of uh, come yeah, to fruition? Uh, I know we use the word a lot, the journey, like the breast yeah. reconstruction journey. Um, and it just depends what, what you have to start with. The best for us is a patient that has good shaped breasts, no ptosis, no sagginess, nipples in a good position, and they just need to make an, we make an incision in the crease, do the mastectomy through the incision in the crease, keep the nipple and the skin envelope, and then we either put tummy tissue inside that pocket, close it up, or put an implant in that pocket, close it up, and the patient wakes up and they've got an incision in the crease, Then and that's it. That's the only operation they have and there's no other journey. Like that is, that is like the ideal situation. Mm. But that's rare, okay? So then you've got lots of different situations. So if you're... Let's make up a make up a patient, a fifty year old lady who has breast ptosis and saggy breast, who then needs a reconstruction. You can't have, you can't save the nipple. So what we do in that because the nipple's too low and it won't survive the blood supply. So what we do in those patients is do a breast lift to get the tissue back up to the normal position. Let it sit for three to six months in that new position, and then make the incision in the crease and do exactly the same operation. Mm. Some women have don't do anything on one side and say they've got saggy breast on the left, have a mastectomy reconstruction on the right. We do that reconstruction, then wait three to six months, do the breast lift on the, that other side, wait three, three to six months, and then put the nipple on the reconstructed side. Wow. And getting that symmetry is- To get that symmetry. It's yeah. very difficult, isn't it? Yeah. From a surgeon's perspective, what do you enjoy doing more of? Do you enjoy the straightforward ideal candidate patient or do you actually- I guess from a personal like selfish perspective, do you enjoy the more complex cases because they challenge you from a technical perspective and increase your skill set? And oh, you're, you're kind of doing the same operation, but like I like doing the microsurgery, microsurgery because it's so much fun, right? right? Um, you couldn't do it every day because it's a bit too stressful, yeah. um, but it's, uh, it's great because you're dealing with your microscopes, you're dealing with small blood vessels, um, and then you're creating this bit of tissue and then you're shaping it, as Jake said, into something. So I, lo- I love doing those operations um, and patients are generally very happy with those. Yeah. Um, I kind of look at it as, like, as an actor, right? And if you're an actor, what would you like to do? And I suppose Kate Blanchett or, uh, is a great example and maybe Hugh Jackman is – they go and do Hollywood blockbusters. So that's kind of like doing the cosmetic breast augmentation work, which is good. It's, you know, cheap thrills, you get paid well and it's great. <laughs> but then they go and do Broadway and work in theatres, don't get paid as well, but that's the art of it. So the art for us is doing the microsurgery in the public hospital because that's the fun, that's like being on stage. And then the cosmetic world is like being in a Marvel Sick <laughs> yeah, yeah. I used to hate having to stand there for eight hours without <laughs> yeah. a microscope, like yeah, 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 just yeah. retracting something for oh, no, no. the surgeon. It was the worst. It's the worst. It, and, the, and your assistant, sometimes your assistant, when you're under the microscope, sometimes you can feel them fall asleep because <laughs> the microscope gets pushed towards you. You look around, they're asleep. You're like, oh my God. That wasn't me. I didn't do that. But uh, yeah. Gosh. That was brilliant. But you know what? Having said that, like nowadays, unilateral breast recon, um, free tissue transfer, uh, you know, we're doing it in under two and a half hours. That's amazing. Right. Yeah. I think for due diligence, and yeah, anyone listening to this, we've, we've touched topics like cancer and, and uh, inherited breast disease, etc. Can you just give us some guidelines as to what the current, you know, self-examination advice would be for, for women or even men? Yeah, I guess, um, yeah, just self-examination whenever you get a chance. So that's easy. And women know their breasts so well, you know, you, and I suppose you, whenever you see a lump or you feel a lump, you're in the shower, you, you kind of, you know your body, okay? Mm. Um, and you just have to act with paranoia. If you get any lump or anything, you just get it triple, triple modalities, self-examination, biopsy imaging. And then you get all that. Now, from a prophylactic point of view, um, uh, from a mammogram point of view, from a screening point of view, in Australia it's 50 where they start screening Mm -hmm. unless you've got high risk and you get it earlier, like 30 or 40. My mother, good example, she went and had her second annual mammogram. She got it six months earlier than she otherwise would. It's probably about 10, 11 years ago and they found breast cancer for her. Mm. So she she had a lumpectomy, which yes. is they just removed the lump and she had post-operative radiotherapy to that area. Um, and that was all found on screening mammography. Sure. 
Um, now, her she didn't even know she had a problem. It was just through the mammogram. Exactly. She couldn't feel the lump, and, and, and that's why we do screening because it gets picks up those lumps that you otherwise, because by the time it's bigger. Now, if you've got big breast and a small lump, you're never going to feel it. Mm. But if you've got a small breast with the same lump, you're going to feel it easier. Yeah. I guess just to just expand on that, it's not always a lump, is it? Sometimes it's a little crease yeah, yeah. or... I don't know, bleeding nipple, yeah, yeah, or something odd. Yeah, so yeah. If there's anything untoward, you just go and see your doctor. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I had a patient who's one of my superstar patients, and she had other procedures. And she goes, "I oh, want Can you look at my breasts because they're a bit uneven?" And I, as soon as I saw the breast, it was like a classic textbook breast cancer that you rarely see anymore because we catch everything in the early phase. Um, the skin changes the purda orange, we call it, where the skin looks like the uh, the the texture of an orange peel, the nipples retracted, mm. firm. I mean, that's the classic, but we rarely see that these days because screening's so good and patients are so aware. Okay, gosh. Yeah. So to wrap things up... Um, Talk about um, price on these procedures either. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I mean, obviously your practice may vary from others, but you, you mentioned that some of this is covered by Medicare, some of it would be self-funded. Can you give us some broad brackets of... I think breast cancer, if you have breast cancer, and we we live in Australia, we've got a fantastic health system, and any breast cancer work, in my opinion, and all my breast cancer work, I say to patients, look, you can come to the private, there's a fee associated with the private because that's, you know, there's a, an ECDIS fee, my assistance fee, my out-of-pocket fees. Or we just do it in the public hospital and you pay zero for it. You, and at our public hospital, Royal Hospital for Women in Prince of Wales, the, the women's hospital is specifically catered for women's women's issues. So uh, the going rate, I would say, for, say, a bilateral DEP, bilateral free tissue transfer in Sydney, it's about $20,000, mm. maybe twenty five if you had an ECDIS. And I say to them, look, you can pay that money. Even with your insurance, that's how much it's going to cost you two surgeons, anaesthetist, or save them money, go on holiday and we get it done in the public hospital and you don't pay a cent. Yeah. Even if you've got insurance, just do it. My, my thought, do it in the public hospital. What Different story for cosmetic. You can't go in a public hospital. Of course you have to go get it, get paid for it. But um, I don't think patients should be held hostage on, uh, on the fee for reconstruction because whilst it is a bit cosmetic to get reconstructed it's all reconstructive you've you've got a can you got a cancer yeah uh, and it can be done in a public hospital now the waiting list in public hospitals is a little bit more in private if you're a delayed you've had your breast cancer then you go on the waiting list 6 to 12 months okay you can't jump in front of someone but if you have a cancer then yes you probably get it done quickly in the pub private but in the public you still have to get it done within a month because yeah. you have a cancer yeah so it's not like you have to wait 12 months mm. right Okay. And then what about if it's just pure reconstruction? So someone wants a lift um, or reduction or yeah, that, reduction, that, lift, implant. I mean, where does... That's all in the private. That's all in the private. You, you can't... The only time we do lifts in the public is where you've done a tissue transfer on one mm. side and you have to lift the other side to match it. Yeah. And what would the price be roughly on that private cosmetic work? I guess the non-cancer. Uh, so. Depends. But usually, depending if you've got health insurance or not, say a breast reduction with health insurance probably going to cost you out-of-pocket 12. Okay. With ins without insurance, probably 18, 16 okay. to 18. Yeah. Okay. Thousand. And I guess that can vary depending on how much time and work is involved. Yeah, exactly. So it's not like an exact science in yeah. terms of pricing. It's very much a case-by-case -case basis. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining thank us you. again, Ziggy. It's been insightful mm. and hopefully that's answered you know, a lot of listeners' questions about where they go from A to B. Yeah. And can you just remind us again how people get in contact with you and how yeah. they find well, you? Well, I will say before that, um, if you do have breast cancer or breast, and going to go through the journey of breast cancer, uh, a superstar patient of mine and I started this uh, forum reconstructive group called reclaimyourcurves.org.au. Um and it's just a forum where there's all these other patients who are going through the same thing. If you've got a question, you email it in and a plastic surgeon, me, answers any questions you have. So that's Reclaim Your Curves. That's okay. brilliant. Um, however, for me, I'm yeah, drmirati.com.au uh, um, and just check out the website. And you're on all the popular social media Yeah, channels. my social media page, my Insta page is drmirati.com.au. 
Um, I don't think I've even got a Facebook. Does anyone check Facebook anymore? I don't know. <laughs> if you're over 60, you probably <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's a Facebook page, but I, I don't even know if I use it's it. It's all about the Insta. It's all Instagram. Yeah. And Snapchat's Park yeah. Clinic Docs. Yeah. Oh, right. And your mobile number? Just kidding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My WhatsApp? Yeah. 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 Well, thank you. No, that was thank great you for your fun. time. We appreciate it, as always. And um, hopefully we'll see you again soon. Cool. Thanks, Thanks Thank you. Bye.